I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Darash Chai Experiment, the show where we take the things of life and we attempt to understand the Bible through them, using the patterns and the uh, the things that we see represented in the world around us. This week we'll begin chapter 24 of Genesis, but we're not going to finish it. In fact, uh, the ending point of this week is going to seem somewhat uh, somewhat of a cliffhanger. However, there's a lot to be said about this week, so let's go ahead and, and get into it. So, as we come into this chapter, chapter 24 of Genesis, Abraham and Isaac have just gone through their ordeal on Mount Moriah. Sarah, the faithful wife and mother, has just passed away. A lot of heartache, worrying, and testing has just been passed through, and as is so common in the patterns of life that God puts his people through, a growth in covenant is now at hand, a a deepening of relationship. And this entire chapter tells the story of the servant of Abraham that is sent to Haran to find a suitable match for Isaac. And if you're paying attention, you will notice that the last chapter, this chapter, and a large portion of the next, the focus of the text shifts from the main actors, or the main characters, if you will, to secondary and even tertiary characters. This week, we're barely going to see Abraham. Uh, we won't see Isaac, but we will meet his wife. And while Rebecca seems to be the focus of the chapter, there's another character that we'll meet that has a much larger role to play in the history of Israel. And Rebecca, while the wife of Isaac and the mother of Jacob and Esau, is really only a secondary character. She is in the background for many of the stories to come, and she's only ever really once the main character in any story. However, we're going to meet Lavan, the brother of Rebecca. And he becomes a very central character in a few chapters from now. And these two are people that we will speak of more next week, because we're really going to get a chance to meet them next week. This week we'll focus on the servant. The servant of Abraham is a very minor character in the course of the narrative. He is a character, however, that can teach us a lot about our relationship to God. In the past I've heard and I've even taught that the scripture provides an archetype of the Holy Spirit being sent to the nations in order to gather the bride for the sacrificed only son. However, as I really looked at it this week, I don't necessarily think that this text upholds this idea. So we're going to explore this some, exactly who is the messenger, and is he an archetype? And if he is an archetype, an archetype of whom? And there's another thing that we'll run into as well. This week we will run into a first in Scripture. Well, since this is the book of Genesis, the firsts are to be expected and even looked for. However, this week is a very important first because we will encounter this week the very first prayer recorded in Scripture. We usually tend to steep our understanding of prayer as a conversation with God. And sure, up to this point in Scripture, others have talked to God. And each of those times, it's at least implied that God was present in some physical way. The reason that this is implied is because every time in the past, God has responded with speech. 
The past communications with God took the form of conversations, which may then be called prayer, but when we pray, especially in the modern world, we don't experience prayer in the same way. In fact, we rarely hear a voice respond to us in clear speech. Usually, it's as if we're just speaking to, to the air. And that is what we find modeled for us in this chapter. One thing to understand is in the Old English, praying meant specifically to ask or to beg for something, not simply to have a conversation. And once again, that is something else that we will see modeled this week for the very first time in this very first prayer. We'll see someone making a request of what seems to be empty air. But this man, he knows things about God, and he leverages what he knows of God's character as part of his request. This man, though, he's not a primary character as we conceive of it. He is a secondary and a faceless character in the story of Israel. He doesn't even get a name in this chapter. He has a part to play, but he's not the guy. To many of us, he's almost missable in the story, and that's a shame, because this man... This faceless background character is very prominent and very necessary to the continuation of the covenant. Who he is and how he is described is vitally important, and his prayer can teach us a lot about God, about ourselves, and about our relationship with God. So let's go ahead and read this chapter only up to verse 33, and then we will come back and discuss it. Genesis 24, verses 1 through 33. And Abraham was old, advanced in years, and Hashem had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, so that I make you swear by Hashem, the Elohim of the heavens and the Elohim of the earth, that you do not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But to go to my land and to my relatives, and to take a wife for my son, Yitzhak. And the servant said to him, What if the woman refuses to follow me to this land? Do I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Avraham said to him, Beware, lest you take my son back there. Hashem, Elohim of the heavens, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my relatives, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your seed I give this land. He sends his messenger before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman refuses to follow you, then you shall be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. Then the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. And the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, for all of his master's good gifts were in his hand. And he arose and he went to Aram Naharaim, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a fountain of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, Hashem, Elohim of my master Abraham, Please cause her to meet before me this day, and show loving commitment to my master, Abraham. See, I am standing here by the fountain of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your jar to let me drink, and she says, Drink, and let me water your camels too. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Yitzhak, and let me know by this that you have shown loving commitment to my master. And it came to be before he had ended speaking that see Rivka, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Avraham's brother, came out with a jar on her shoulder. And the young woman was very good-looking, a maiden, no man having known her. And she went down to the fountain, filled her jar, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, Drink, my master. And she hurried and let her jar down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, Let me draw water for your camels, too, until they have finished drinking. 
And she hurried and emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the fountain to draw water and drew it for all his camels. And watching her, the man remained silent in order to know whether Hashem had prospered his way or not. And it came to be when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels of gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please inform me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. And she said to him, We have both straw and fodder enough and room to spend the night. And the man bowed his head and worshipped Hashem. And he said, Blessed be Hashem, Elohim of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving commitment and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, Hashem led me to the house of my master's brothers. Then the young woman ran and informed those of his mother's house these matters. And Rivka had a brother whose name was Lavan, and Lavan ran out to the man, to the fountain. And it came to be when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words that sister Rivka sang, thus the man spoke to me. And he went to the man and saw him standing by the camels at the fountain. And he said, Come in, O blessed of Hashem. Why do you stand outside? I myself have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came into the house while he unloaded the camels and provided straw and fodder for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him and set food before him to eat. But he said, Let me not eat until I have spoken my word. And he said, Speak on. So that was kind of a uh, abrupt end there, right? It's a cliffhanger. So go ahead and speak and nothing. And the reason it does that is because I, I consciously made a decision. You see, in the three-year cycle... This chapter, or this Parsha, is supposed to end in verse 41. However, with all that we have to talk about, verse 33 seemed like a really good stopping point for uh, what we are doing today, and then we'll pick up and we'll cover the entire rest of the chapter in the next week. So the main character of the story, he is not really given a name in this chapter. Back in Genesis 4, we talked about how the vagueness in Scripture, it can be a pointer to something very meaningful. And this vagueness is a literary technique that the Bible authors make very liberal use of. For we know that the Bible can be excruciatingly specific when it needs to be, and when it is vague, there seems to be a purpose. In most cases, vagueness allows for us to take part of ourselves and our own situations and our current circumstances and then to overlay those on the pages of Scripture, which can then allow us to see ourselves in the text. And that allows us to learn more about ourselves. Now, we could infer the name of this nameless servant because it's the one that we may have seen named earlier in chapter 15. If we go back to chapter 15, God said, I will bless your house. And then Abraham responded in verse 2. And Abraham said, Master Hashem, what would you give me, seeing that I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And that could be useful, I suppose. But what I have found is that when this happens, when people, when we go back and we grab this name from that previous chapter and then import it into this chapter, a lot of people end up making correlations that I spoke of earlier, of the text speaking of the Holy Spirit as an archetype. And upon closer inspection, as I said, I don't think that's quite what it's talking about. You see, Eliezer, it means my God is help. And that gets us thinking about the helper that Yeshua said that he would send before his people. And as I said earlier, I don't think that this is the archetype that we're meant to get from this chapter. And so today we're going to look at what the text does say without importing this name and imposing it in a place where it is not specifically used. 
because Scripture could have easily just given us the name of the servant once again if that was the point. So let's respect the fact that it didn't. Instead, let's examine the servant thematically through what is said and discover what we can find out about him. In verse 2, the servant is called the oldest servant in his house and the one who ruled over all that he, being Abraham, had. This man is referred to as the servant 13 times in this chapter, six of them in this first section that we're reading now, in verse 2, 5, 9, 10, 17, and 34. The other seven occur in the last part of this chapter that we're going to look at next week. And there is another title that's used to refer to the servant in this chapter. Six times in this part of this chapter, the servant is simply referred to as the man, Ha'esh, in verse 21, 22, 26, 29, and twice in verse 30. Now, these descriptors can help us to thematically build a picture, an archetype of sort. Usually when we deal with archetypes, we take the descriptions that we have of one character and we look for ways to apply them to other characters in scripture. For the most part, it's become popular to take various characters and then to type them and fit them to Yeshua. And that is present in this chapter, but in a very limited quality. To use Yeshua in this role, and then also in the role of Isaac, it leaves us with a bit of a problem in working out their relationship to each other. There is, however, another type that's present in this chapter. And the type that I'm speaking of is something that's found by using the descriptors that I've just pointed out. He's a servant but he's also a man. So what are we told of this man, this servant? Well, he was given a task. In essence, the task boils down to something along these lines. Go into the world and seek covenant partners for my son. And that's a task that all of us as believers have been tasked with. In Mark 16.15 it says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to every creature. Then it says, Do not allow my son to go to them, but draw them here to me. In John 6.44 we say, No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I shall raise him up on the last day. And then in this chapter it says, If they do not wish to come to him, then your responsibility in the matter is ended. In Matthew 10.14 it says, And whoever does not receive you nor hear your words when you leave that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. So in Genesis 1, there was a charge that was given to man, and that charge had two parts in verse 28 of Genesis 1. And it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So number one, be fruitful and multiply. Number two, rule and reign. This man who is the servant has been given rulership over all that Abraham owned. And we've discussed before the true biblical rulership and authority is, in actuality, servanthood. The king's role is demonstrated in the Torah is to serve the people, not to lift himself up over the people. And we see Yeshua call on this idea in Matthew 20, verse 27 through 28, and says, Whoever wishes to be first among you, let him be your servant, even as the son of Adam did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This man is then tasked with going into the world and multiplying the covenant. This unnamed man is acting out his charge to mankind, the charge that we all have been given. And this charge also contains a promise. In verse 7 we read that God will send his messenger, his angel ahead of you, to ensure your success. And God has a vested interest in this happening. God will cause it to happen. He will make your way to prosper. 
And that reminds us of John 15, 26 through 27. It says, And when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of the truth who comes from the Father, he shall bear witness of me. But you also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And that's why I no longer consider this chapter to be creating an archetype of the Helper, specifically the Helper being the Holy Spirit. Because the servant in this chapter has an angel going before him, an angel that God is sending before him. And that's how we interact with the Holy Spirit. Because we too, we have an angel that goes before us, that Holy Spirit which prepares our way so that we might be successful in our charge. And what is our charge? Our charge is to rule through servanthood and to spread the fruit of the kingdom of God. So the servant is given authority to act on the Father's behalf. And this chapter, and in many others, the Father, Avraham, plays an archetype of the Father. So in Luke 10, verse 19, it says, See, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and none at all shall hurt you. Authority given to the followers of Yeshua. In Mark 13, 33-35, it says, Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. As a man going abroad, having left his house and given authority to his servants, and to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, or at midnight, or at the crowing of the cock, or in the morning. And then at Luke 9, 1, it says, And having called his twelve disciples together, he gave them power and authority over all demons, and to heal all diseases. The way that the servant acts in fulfilling the charge provides a pattern for how we too can act to fulfill our charge in the world. Because we too have the messenger going before us to prepare our way for success. And the first thing that we can notice is that the servant swears to act in accordance to the command. His faith in his master leads him to be faithful in his calling. He places his hand under Abraham's thigh and then he swears. In the ancient Near East, this was a common way for a subordinate to take a vow of obedience. The subordinate would grasp the symbol of prosperity and power in that region of the body, and I don't have to get more specific than that, I assume, and then they would swear to obey. We read of this type of promise twice in scriptures, here and in Genesis 47-29, when Joseph swears to bury Jacob in Canaan. The specifics are a bit shady, but it's thought that it may be a way of swearing based on the covenant of the circumcision that had been given. Another option is based on the fact that our word testify is derived from the part of the body that would be grasped when one would take an oath to complete a task. Testify. Think about that for a second. So in essence, the subordinate would swear upon the power that extends beyond the present authority, the entire generational line from that point forward, and all of the power inherent in it to fulfill this request. This was an oath that extended beyond the life of the individual giving the command. It was a note that, if not fulfilled, would lead to being cut off from the household of the one giving the command. Once the servant agrees, he gathers together the resources allocated to him to fulfill the request, and he sets out to immediately fulfill his charge. The servant is given gifts, but those gifts are not for his enrichment. The gifts are to be used to call others into covenant. This is something that we read of in the New Testament, in the letters of Paul. In 1 Corinthians 14, 1-4, it says, Pursue love and earnestly seek the spiritual gifts, but rather that you prophesy. For he who is speaking in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands. But in the Spirit 
he speaks secrets. But he who is prophesying speaks of building and encouragement and comfort to men. He who is speaking in tongues builds himself up. But he who is prophesying builds up the assembly. And then in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, it says, And he gave himself some as emissaries, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as shepherds, and some as teachers. And by implication, gifts were given to fulfill these roles. For the perfecting of the holy ones, to the work of service, to a building up of the body of Messiah, until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure and the stature of the completeness of Messiah, so that we should no longer be children tossed and borne about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of men and cleverness unto the craftiness of leading astray, but maintaining the truth in love, we grow up in all respects to him who is the head, Messiah, from whom the entire body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the working by which each part does its share, causes growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The gifts that we are given are not for our benefit, they're for the purpose of building. And when the man gets to the place he is led to go, he does two things. One, he goes to the place where he's likely to meet every eligible lady in the city, the, the local watering hole. He, in essence, goes to the place where the covenant partner is likely to be found. He doesn't hide. He doesn't wait for others to come and find him. He places himself in public. We see Paul doing this in Acts 17, 16-17. But while Saul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred up within him. And he saw that the city was utterly idolatrous. Therefore, indeed, he was reasoning in the congregation with the Jews and with the worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who met there. Yeshua also went to public places in order to seek followers. Does this mean that we should go out preaching on the street corner? Not necessarily. Consider the second thing that the servant does. Two, he prays. And this prayer is the prayer that I spoke of earlier. In this prayer, there's a word that's repeated twice, and that word is chesed. And this word is one that's usually translated as mercy or kindness or loving kindness, but in my opinion, as I look at its usage throughout Scripture, it means all of these, but way much more. A while back, it was impressed upon me that chesed does in fact mean all of these things, but that it can all be boiled down to an action that demonstrates loyalty to covenant. And we'll see both uses of this word in this prayer. The prayer both opens and closes with the idea of covenant loyalty. In verse 12, Please, God, show chesed to Abraham. And then in verse 14, Let me know through this means that you have shown chesed to my master. So does the servant ask for God to intervene for his own sake? Not at all. Does the servant plead for help because the task is too hard? No, not at all. He asks God's assistance based on God's own loyalty to the covenant that he had made with Abraham. That's it. He says, God, you are loyal to the covenant, and so I ask you to remain loyal to the covenant. And what is it that the servant asks for? On the surface, it would seem as if he asks for a sign. And there are several times in scripture where we read of people asking for signs. Growing up, asking for a sign from God was steeped in the story of Gideon and what was called putting out a fleece. But if we examine the story of Gideon in Judges 6, we discover that Gideon asks for the sign because he lacked the faith necessary to carry out God's will. And that's not what's happening here. The servant believes he has faith and he is obeying in the task that the master has given him. He knows that God will provide. He's just not sure about the method in which to approach the task. 
he's not sure about who to approach. Boiled down in the plainest terms, the servant is asking for discernment. He's saying, you have given me a task. Now, how do I accomplish this task? Who is it that you've chosen to enter into your covenant with your son? We do see in his request a hint of holding up his faith. He says, so that I know that you have shown chesed. And then he waited to see if Hashem had prospered his way. Was he asking, give me a sign so that I know you are real? No, that's not the sign we're to look for. A wicked and perverse generation asks for signs of this type. Give me a sign so that I might know your will. Yes. This is the type of sign that the servant is asking for. And I myself have done this, and God has answered very concretely. And this is the only reason that I still do what I do. Because the fact of the matter is, I don't have a huge listenership. Now, those of you listening out there, you're probably people who know me personally. And I've been on the verge of quitting doing this on leading the congregation that I lead and doing many of the things that God has asked me to, to do on multiple occasions. But each time it's come down to it, I have stopped and I have simply asked, Father God, if this is what you want me to do, if you wish me to stay true in this, I'm going to need for you to make the way for it to occur. And then he did. He would make a way in the wilderness when there seemed to be no other way. Once God answers with a sign, however, in this way to make his will clear, don't keep asking for him to prove himself in the same way. So if we dig deeper into the thematic imagery of this chapter, what exactly is the servant asking for? He's asking, how will I know the one that you want to be in covenant? And how will I know who to approach with these signs of the covenant that I'm carrying? To whom shall I share the promise of inclusion into the household of Abraham? Dare I say it, who do you want me to share the gospel with? This good news that the covenant of promise needs a bride and that you too could be that bride. A great nation is in the process of being formed and you can be part of that. And we're told that we are not to cast our pearls before swine, right? We're not to take what is precious to us and throw it out in front of just anybody. So how is it that the servant was prevented from making his offer to a person that was not the one that God had chosen? How was the servant to know that the one he had approached wouldn't be considered swine when held up to the standard of covenant? What did he ask for from the bride, from this covenant partner? He wanted her to demonstrate fruit, fruit of mercy, compassion, and kindness. How will you know them? By their fruit, it was his task to be fruitful and multiply. Who was the fruitful one of the covenant meant to multiply through? Well, one who bore the same fruit. And there are so many ways that we can see this idea carried on throughout the pages of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not become unevenly yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, and what fellowship has light with darkness? We see another instance of this in the Torah. But this other instance takes on a slightly different approach. A prayer is made asking for discernment. Is this of you or is this my own desires? And the second time the discernment is based on the covenant partners. This time not for inclusion, but rather for exclusion from the covenant. In Numbers 16, 28-31, we read of the rebellion of Korah. 
And Korah gathers all of his men that want to overthrow Moses as the governmental leader. He gathers a bunch of men that want to overthrow Aaron as the religious leader. And they all come together to withstand Moses, to stand up against him. So in Numbers 16, verse 28 through 31, And Moshe said, By this you know that Hashem has sent me to do all these works, that they are not from my own heart. If these die as all men do, or if they are visited as all men are visited, then Hashem has not sent me. But if Hashem creates what is unheard of, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down into the grave, then you shall know that these men have scored Hashem. In both cases, here in this chapter and in number 16, the prayer was answered immediately. In both cases, it says, as soon as they were done speaking. God looks with favor upon requests that are made in his name. And when we call on his loyalty to the covenant, when we ask for a sign that we are doing what he wants, when we ask for discernment to do his will, he will answer. He will show you the way. He will confirm and provide guidance in what he has asked you to do. So, at this point, Rebecca shows up on the scene. A servant asks for a drink from her jar, and surprise, surprise, she offers also to water his camels. The man does not immediately decide to jump in and declare himself to her. He waits. Will she finish the job? Will she continue until it's all done, or is she simply putting on a pretense of kindness? It's not until the camels actually finish drinking that he then approaches her. And how does he approach her? Does he approach her with his task? Does he explain to her what he is looking for? Nope. He gives her a sign. We really don't know for sure the significance of the nose ring that the servant gives Rivka, because the, the rings and the bracelets mean different things in different cultures. We do know that in Bedouin tribes and in Berber tribes, a nose ring is part of the betrothal process, and I think it's highly likely that this is the same thing that applied in Israel. Ezekiel 16 also gives us a glimpse that this might be the case in verse 8 through 13. It says, Again, I passed by you and looked upon you and saw that your time was the time of carnal love, and I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness, and I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, declares the Master Hashem. And I washed you in water, and I washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. And I dressed you in embroidered work, and gave you sandals of leather. And I wrapped you in fine linen, and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments, and I put bracelets on your wrists, and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, and earrings in your ears, and a crown of adorning on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your dress was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil, and you were exceedingly beautiful and became fit for royalty. So the size of the ring that's here symbolizes the wealth of the giver, and the ring itself would act as a sort of dowry as the woman would be able to sell the ring in the case of a divorce or the death of her husband to provide for herself. He doesn't just give Rebecca the specifics of the offer of the covenant or the family that she would be joining but she understands the basics of what's going on here. The servant is, in essence, when he hands her these things, he is saying, I'm looking for a bride for a very wealthy man. And then he asks, whose daughter are you? The marriage offer was made before he even knew whose family she belonged to. He either didn't want his own perception of the girl or her family to influence his decision, 
or his faith was so great in the sign that had been given that he was simply confirming what he already knew to be true. I believe it's the first, that he didn't want to allow his own ideas to influence the outcome. So she responds with her family name, and of course she is of the household of Haran, and what was the response of the man? Once again he prays. He bows his head and he worships Hashem. And the verse here is a thematic center of this chapter. And what he says, it also teaches us something more of prayer. How is it that he thanks Hashem? He says, You have not forsaken your covenant loyalty to my master. You have been truthful to my master. The servant did not attempt to get matters to fit his own preconceptions and desires of what it is to be. He simply asks God to be faithful to his covenant, and he is willing to accept what God provides. It just so happened that what God provides is what Abraham asked for, and in this, God confirmed his own loyalty to the covenant of his servant. So Rebecca then runs and informs her family, Hey guys, rich man, marriage proposal, <laughs> flurry of excitement, right? Enter Laban. So Laban comes on the scene and he runs to the servant and he invites him to come and to stay with them. The servant returns to the house with Laban and his animals and servants and they're all cared for. Once all this has been seed to, food is set before the servant, but the servant has a higher priority than eating at this point. He responds with, I'm not going to eat until I've completed my task. And it's only now, after the proposal has in essence already been made and is at last being entertained by the family, that the servant reveals his own identity. The speech that the servant gives is in essence a retelling of the story that we have just read. And for the sake of continuity, we're not going to get into the servant's speech this lesson. So what is it that we can learn from this chapter? Is it simply revealing that the Holy Spirit will go out into the world and will collect a bride for the Son? Or is this chapter the beginning of a pattern, how each and every one of us who is in service to the Father is supposed to approach those who are of the nations? Because there's a very profound message in this chapter that allows us to see the servant as an archetype of a man, not of the line of Abraham, but of the household of Abraham. A man who is given and accepts his charge to bring others into the covenant from the nations. A man who's given gifts by the Father, not for his own riches, but with which to enrich the nations, to give freely to entice others into the covenant. Gifts that prove the authority of the Father and the servant's capacity that has been granted by the Father to act in that role. A man who knows not to trust on his own understanding and his own discernment as he works to grow the family of the Father. A man who seeks the Father's guidance in how to proceed on his path. And a man who does not settle for the first sign of success, but is patient and waits for full proof before proceeding. Most of all, I think this chapter provides us with a picture of a man who has given up his own will and is in full submission to the Father. And this man who has been faithful in his past service has been entrusted with the future success of the covenant. Let's face it, none of us, none of us is Abraham. We're more like Lot than anything else. None of us is Isaac or Sarah or Rebecca. Rather, in the grand scope of things, we are this unnamed servant who will be passed over by most. We will be the one who's not really even considered to be part of the story. And that's as it should be. 
because that is our role. This is perhaps the chapter in Genesis that we should all strive to really learn from, because in it we find our own picture. And we can learn much of how we should be from the others. We learn an awesome lesson of faith, righteousness, covenant, blessing, and more through the others, through the main characters. We aren't the main actor, though, and so perhaps the best glimpse of who we are in relationship to the Father is here. We are the unnamed servant. That's our job, to serve. He gives us gifts so that we might go out into the world. We might approach those who God seeks to have in covenant with his Son. We then give those gifts or pass them on to those people and explain that you, you can come join. You can join the family of Abraham. You can join in the kingdom that's being built. This is the example given for us here. This is perhaps the greatest example of the common individual that we will find in Scripture, of just the normal person, you and I, walking through this world. No one knows who we are. We are not the great patriarchs of the faith. We are not the central characters of the story. We are in the background, unnamed, unrecognized even. And yet, it's our job to go out and to build the kingdom. And God's done that for us. He's equipped us for that. So as you go into this new week, look for ways. Look for people. Learn to pray the, the prayer that the servant prays in this chapter. Oh, Father, please show me who it is that you want to include in your covenant. Give me the gifts that I need to reveal to this, this person, this unknown person from the nations, that will demonstrate your love for them, demonstrate your wealth, your power, and your authority. It's only with these things that we can even have a slightest hope of success. So go into the new week, watch for those people, and as you go, be aware, keep your eyes open, and Deresh Chai, seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare Shai, as we seek life. Shalom.